Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. I've noticed, you know, I moved back east in May, and the humidity is killing me. Now, I lived in Burbank for 15 years, and people would say, oh, Burbank's humid. And you look at your app, and it'll be 50%. Every morning in New Jersey, it is 97 or 98%. I think there's been some days where it's 100%, and I think it could have been 115%, but they don't go that high. So anyway, I'm dealing with it though, and I'm calling a gentleman who is living in LA, and he's a he's a very successful musician, actor, has a great radio show. My guest is Michael DeBars. How you doing, Michael? I'm running humid. Yeah. How, now you live in LA. How long how long have you lived in LA? <laughs> uh, I've lived in Los Angeles since 1974. I came to America in 1972. I've lived in America since 74. You know, I fell in love with Miss Pamela, the queen of the groupies, who wrote, I'm with the band. And I realized the other day that it is the 30th year anniversary of that book, which is so clever and she's so brilliant. But I've been here a long time, my friend, so I know about humidity. So, you know, well, now, now, as a kid, because you, you've had an acting and singing career and you've done it all, when you were a little child, what made you gravitate towards the arts? Was it something that you knew at a young age you wanted to do? Or how did this all, this wonderful career all start? I think it's very interesting that you asked me that question right off the bat, because I, I was asked that on my show, and I answered it, and it was, it was very interesting to, to even hear me say so, because to be completely honest with you, which is what I'll be for the, the time we're on the phone together, is um, that there was never a choice for me. I didn't know my mother and father, and I was in boarding schools from 8 to 16, which meant that I had to be in the middle of the room, I had to be the center of attention. All of the cliches that you hear about artists who want to be loved, they all apply to me. Now, that, given the fact that I somehow gravitated towards the arts, it wasn't really acting or music, it was just a feeling of wanting to express myself in some way. And, you know, I would express myself in the sports field. I was very athletic, and I'd love to break that tape, man, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just love the feeling of accomplishment. And then um, there was, to answer your question succinctly, there was really no choice. It chose me. So it chose you, so as a young child and through your age. Now, how do you decide when you're going to actually pursue this for a career? I mean, as you, when you were in high school, what did you want to do? Well, I was not in high school. First of all, I was raised in the gothic, Wuthering Heights atmosphere of British aristocracy. So there's nothing about high school. I got high at school, but there was no high school. The, the British educational system is, is um, absurd and uh, very, very problematic in that you put a bunch of boys together um, from 13, well, 8 to 16, there's going to be a lot of challenges and a lot of problems, especially in Britain, where the class system is so outrageous and disgusting. So you're going to get these elitist boys picking on the younger ones. Um, everything you've heard about, everything Dickens wrote about, still exists in a hidden way. So um, the, the schooling itself was very educative for me because I never went home. There was no home. My dad was in jail. My mother was in an institution for schizophrenia. So I lived in these schools. My father had a title. So I, we had the resources for me to have a great education. So it's a long and complex story that will come out in my documentary, which is coming out next year. 
That's awesome that you're in a documentary because you've had such a great life. So when did you decide to start pursuing music? And were you an actor first or were you music when you started in your career? I loved the blues. There was a guy, there was a guy who would, uh, I befriended because he was the biggest, toughest guy. And he loved the blues. And he turned me on to that when I was very young. I was about 11 or 12. And it was Sonny Boy Williamson. It was R.L. Burnside, John Lee Hooker, the usual list. Elmore James, Muddy Waters, Lead Belly stuff. And, but I wanted to act, you know, because that's all I knew. You know, in the drama stuff we did at school, that's when I really came alive. And I felt that I could, by portraying somebody else, could escape the absurdity of my education. But, you know, so I was very young. I mean, I was, when I was 10, I somehow finagled an agent and did a commercial for a candy bar um, on the off-season somehow. And then when I was 16, I went to drama school, and within months, I was into So With Love with Sidney Poitier in 1966. Now, what is that like? I mean, did you understand how Sidney Poitier was, you know, was he a legend yet, or what, how was that acting with him? Well, it was extraordinary because one, you know, had, did not have the experience of being around a charismatic, noble a man like Sidney Poitier, who remains the most uh, charismatic, noble man that I ever knew in my entire life, and, and to get that charge of, of, of that frequency of stardom and brilliance um, so young really, I think, informed my entire endeavors that followed. You know? So how was it? It was mind-blowing is what it was. Plus, the kids, Lulu, I mean, you know, the cast was incredible. And Swing in London was swinging, and it swung a lot harder when that movie came out for me because, you know, it put me on some kind of velvet walk, you know. <laughs> I was there, I was part of the culture, so I could get in and see the yardbirds, and I could see the animals, and see the stones, see the beetles, um, because of the largesse that we'd gotten from this movie. So you sit there, you do the movie, now after you get that little that taste of being acting and feeling some success, what decides you to get into the music and where do you decide where you want to go at that point in your career? I, I, I think that what happened was I did this musical, you know, um, and it was a nude musical called The Dirtiest Show in Town. And what happened was I, I played this androgynous rock star, um, strangely enough, and Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, came to see this. It was a big hit. I was like 18, I was like 19, I think, something like that. And I sang in it, and, and he, he came backstage with Robert Stigwood, who was the producer of the thing, and said, listen, do you have any songs? And I said, oh, songs, I've got hundreds of songs, I've got lots of songs, because I didn't have a song at all. <laughs> and, I, and he said, come and see me and my friends in my apartment, and maybe play a couple of songs. So I wrote a couple of songs. <laughs> well, one of them was called Will You Finance My Rock and Roll Band, Steve. And I went in there in my green velvet suit and uh, I got signed to Purple Records because Ian Gillen was singing Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar. And um, Andrew was very connected with uh, the music business. Superstar hadn't come out yet, but he had the uh, clout to be able to get me a record deal, which is what happened. So you get the record deal. Now, you must sing, but did you feel confident that you could churn out some music, or was it going to have someone write you the tunes? Did I feel confident? Yeah, you could. Is, that, was you that could, your question? Yeah, did, did you, <laughs> you feel confident? Did you feel confident that you could uh, produce? Dude, the, I, I was born with confident tattooed on my ass. <laughs> you know, I, of course I was confident. You have to be confident to grab a fucking microphone, to get up there and act. 
confidence and in a, a relaxation is essential. Otherwise, you die of fright, um, like a deer in the headlights. Well, I was the headlight. So you're doing all this. When did you decide to come over to L.A.? What, what made you decide to come well, to well, the None of these were decisions, Steve. It's the music business. I was in a rock band and we toured America. There are no decisions made when you're on hashish. You know, I was signed to a label. I was 20 years old. You're going to Japan now. Oh, great. I didn't make any decisions. The only decisions I made was who to sleep with. <laughs> so that's, you... that's the only, and I, you know, I think I had a nap in August of 72, but basically the 70s, um, shall we say, were sleepless. I mean, you got to understand, man, it's a different world back then. There's no security. There's no cell phones. There's no bullshit. You're in a band. You want to play. You want to get laid. Like Keith, you want to sing like Muddy Waters. You want to go to bed with everybody. Dude, it was a degenerate, wonderful, debauched time, which had a lot of casualties. And I was a casualty of that experience, you know. To make decisions on a business level, listen, when I first started, I thought a PA was a personal assistant. <laughs> I had no knowledge of technique. I was there to show off and be an exhibitionist and get paid for it. So you're doing this, and you're, you're, as you said, you didn't know a lot, and the people were sitting there telling you where you're going and all. How do you start developing your craft and getting to know things? I'm not interested in craft. I'm interested in emotions. So you basically went back then, you just were coming from your heart and just letting it lead you the way. Well, I mean, all these things, decisions, craft, you know, I'm not a dentist. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm a, you know, I've lived sort of um, beyond those boundaries. Fortunately, thank God, you know, I'm so grateful for that experience. But making decisions and stuff is not my metier. You know, my, my life was... Um, shall we say, no rules. The only rule that we had in Silverhead, which was my first band, Nigel Harrison was on bass, who went on to Blondie, Robbie Blunt worked with uh, Robert Plant. Amazing bunch of musicians, young guys. All we wanted to do was play music. That's it. There was, there was nothing else. But of course, we became victims of narcotics. Were they that rampant back then, so easy to get? Was it like they say, you know, in L.A., you get off stage, people would just give you the drugs? They give you it in Boise, Idaho, Steve. <laughs> it wasn't just L.A., my friend. Now, at what... Everywhere. The drug, the drug culture was everywhere. And now, when that was happening, did, when, did you sit, well, when did you sit there and decide to get clean? What was, was there a defining moment? I, I love the, your pragmatism. Um, I don't have that. Uh, what happened was I had a good friend, um, Danny Goldberg, who has a new book out called 1967, Searching for the Lost Chord. Incredible. You guys out there should get it. It's really definitive. One day we was, I was with Zeppelin and we you know, I had a band. It was on Swan Song and I was drunk out of my mind. And Danny literally grabbed me by my velvet collar and dragged me out and said, you are going to get sober. This is ridiculous. And he uh, get, put me in the hands of a dear friend of him, his called Paul Fishkin, who they had a record company called Modern Records, and they had a huge hit with Stevie Nicks' solo record. And um, 
I, uh, Paul was getting sober. He took me to a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I haven't used uh, from that day, which was 36 years ago. That's awesome. It takes a lot of strength, and it's, you know, it's your career has shown because of that, because you've done so much. Now, I saw you in a documentary, and when you were in Detective, what was the L.A. scene, music scene like? Was it, was it as wonderful as they say, or I remember you said you guys weren't really paying attention because you were living up at a house in the canyons. What was it like to get in that scene, though? I've never been part of a scene, Steve. I've never felt it necessary to be in a herd of sheep, however well-dressed. I've always really hung out with a close, personal, intimate bunch of people who I trust. When I realized, especially when I got off heroin, that, you know, um, there's a lot of people out there that have one objective, and that's to take everything they can from you um, because of their fear and their greed. And I realized that I had to keep my friends very close and my enemies closer. Not that I had enemies, but I think... The scene was an enemy. I don't think you can be part of a scene and really survive. Um, I, you know, my collaborations were with lovers. They weren't with um, people from the music business. So as you're in the music back then, were you starting to, were you missing the acting? Were you trying to do both? Because I know you, you've been on a lot of TV shows. When did you start crossing uh, over? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I've done 150 hours of American television. What happened was... Um, in the late 70s, I did a show uh, called WKRP in Cincinnati, and um, there was a, it was about a band called Scum of the Earth. Some of your listeners might remember, and uh, it was uh, it, it was really fun. And it was Detective, um, the band that was on Swan Song. Jimmy signed us to, to you know Swan Song, and uh, and it was really fun. And I was reminded about what I used to do in England, you know. Um, and it just went from there. You know, detective collapsed in a, again in a, an ocean of drugs. And I got back into acting, which I did. And then I played Murdoch and MacGyver for the next six years. And the original MacGyver did a lot of acting. And, you know, it's been in and out ever since. You know, whatever was in front of me, I do. Well, it's funny because you look at your IMDb and you, you've been in so many shows that we've all watched, you know, I mean, parts in the Rockford Files in your younger career and just something that it's a, it's a resume that is something that anyone who would act would sit there and go, wow, this is a great resume. I always, I have a lot of actors on my show and I always look at their IMDb and, and you're right up there with them. I mean, and also you have the music career. Now, did you find yourself, was it, were you trying to, when you were acting, were you, was it hard to juggle or did you put yourself in a situation where you said, I really want to concentrate on acting right now and not concentrate on music? Well, I didn't concentrate on anything um, except my wardrobe. <laughs> where did you find your great fashion taste? Does that, did that just come to you? Because some people look great, some people try to look great, and they don't. <laughs> I mean, you've seen the people who sit there and buy the nicest clothes, and you go, what do you, what do you look? What do you, where did you find this fashion sense, and have you always had it? Because I've, you're just one of those guys that you sit there and you have charisma and class, and just you you look like you're put together all the time in your pictures. Yeah, thrift stores. So you originally went to the thrift stores? That's because a lot of people. Think... No, I don't originally. I go to thrift stores. That's where I get my. I don't go to designers. Fuck designers. I, I don't have a stylist. I don't have dancers. Oh no! Wait a minute. There's a couple in the bedroom. Hang on. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm not interested in what other people wear or do. 
So you just create your own style, which is awesome. Now, so now I, I want to ask you about you know you Power Station. I know you played in them, yeah, and you played at Live mm. Aid, and I live right now ten minutes from Philadelphia, and I remember watching Live uh-huh. Aid on TV, and it was amazing. We were so bummed if we couldn't get a ticket, and how did that come about? And what was the, what was the feeling of playing Live Aid? Well, I definitely got a ticket. Yeah. Um, what happened was I was in I was in Texas. I was in Texas with Don Johnson, and he was making a movie there. A dear friend of ours, Numis Thomas, and I got a call. I was in a, Obsession was number one. I just wrote this song with Holly Knight. It was number world. I was feeling really good. And I got a call uh, in Texas, and it was from a promoter. And he said, Michael, um, what are you doing this summer? I said, I'm just hanging out, you know, enjoying this, this song, you know, happening. It's so exciting. He said, would you like to come to New York and meet a band that needs a singer real bad? I said, what's the band? He said, I can't tell you. Here's a first-class ticket for you at the airport. Come to New York. I got on a plane. I was picked up in a huge white stretch limo and driven into Manhattan, where I met a trembling and nervous Tony Thompson and John Taylor, who uh, let me know that Robert Palmer had bowed out of a already booked six-month tour with the power station, the splintering off group from Duran Duran, and they had a big hit, Get It On. The record was selling like hot cakes. Would I come and, and sing with them? Because I had supported them, Duran, in a bank called Checkered Pass, with Steve Jones from the Pistols and Clem Buck from Blondie, and they remembered me. So I, I said, yeah. Uh, they, they said to me, well, there's one thing you got to do. I said, what's that? you got to go to London. And he got a thing for Andy Taylor, uh, the guitar player. Um, I got on the Concord that night. I flew to London. I checked in the Dorchester Hotel. I was then taken to a studio. No sleep. I sang. It was all set up in the studio, and it was not there. I waited eight hours. I sang one verse and one chorus of Mark Bowen's classic, Get It On. And he put the intercom on and said, Michael, let's go shopping. So we went into (laughs) a thrift store. We went into various stores, got a load of clothes, got back on the Concord, came to New York, did rehearsals. Eight days later, I was at Live Aid. What is the feeling playing in front of such a huge crowd? I mean, and and it just... Great. Fantastic. It's amazing. As everybody will tell you. But for me, it was ridiculous because I was an actor and I was playing Robert Palmer. I mean, it was there's so many psychological things going on in my head at that time. You know, there's 100,000 people there in Philly, JFK Stadium, and 2 billion people watching. And, you know, I mean, I, I saw the greatest rock and roll stars in the world trembling at this occasion. Because it was so funky, you know, there was no sound checks. There was nothing like that. There was this big circular thing where the band would play, would turn around with another band, Thompson Twins, Madonna's, you know, you name it. And um, and I was as calm as, as could be because I, I somehow realized that I'm so lucky <laughs> to be here amongst these wonderful artists, Bob Dylan, etc. Here I am. And I, I was so great that you could see it on the thing. I'm just smiling from ear to ear. Even the Bill Graham is screaming at us because an amp broke, you know, whatever. And I'm so calm. And I think the reason for that was I realized that it's a communication between me and the audience. It's a conversation. And, you know, and, and if you feel that way, then it's just a one huge frequency. 
it's not you doing your thing and posturing. You know, it's a it's a relationship that you develop with with a massive crowd like that. That's the only way to look at it. Gratitude. It must be an amazing connection, also, because you are the front man, and everyone always focuses on the front man. But I'm sure, as you said, your acting helped that. As you said, you were acting as Robert Palmer. So I mean, that's a great way. To yeah, I mean, you know, in my head, I was me, and the songs were his. Here's the thing: you, you, you know, in order to transcend nervousness, you've really got to believe in yourself. You know, otherwise, you're going to absolutely sort of disappear. And and I just felt so powerful and so lucky and and you know I, I and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed myself there. And I think the majority of people, artists were were just so nervous, as you can see. Yeah, it's funny now because it's the anniversary. You've seen a lot more uh, video coming out, and you know you can see it now because so many people miss that. You know, so many people don't understand what a super show was like and it was just an amazing show and now because it's been so been a while they're leaving you know people can watch it again which is great now now how do you know don johnson how did you meet don? yeah it's lovely what's that no how i was gonna ask you how did you meet don johnson um well what happened was miss pamela my wife at the time um used to date uh don uh in the early days and when we got together in New York, Pamela and I, I then came to live with her in Los Angeles and met all her friends. You know, I was completely uh, fresh and uh, new to L.A. All I knew was a couple of promoters and a bass player. And um, she <laughs> kind of introduced me to her, her people, which were the Zappas, you know, because she was the nanny for Moon Zappa and so on. And that opened up a whole... Um, incredible tribe of, of like-minded people. Don was one of them, and I, you know, just loved him, and um, great singer, by the way, made a great album, I wrote some of it, um, and we just became, you know, bosom buddies to this day, Yeah, and I did vice it. That's why when Power Station, after we did Live Aid, we went right down to Miami and did uh, Miami Vice with the band, you know, as a result of my relationship with Don. We just got along, man, you know, grateful, you know, uh, came to America and invented ourselves. Miami Los Vice. Los Angeles, I should say. Miami Vice was a great show. And that's one of those things that, you know, once again, it's when we watched it, you know, when it came out, it was such a cool show. And to be, you know, in a band and to be an actor and to be a friend of Don's, that must have been a, a great time on set. Well, we had, you know, John was very enamored with uh, Sonny Crockett. You know, John Taylor loved uh, um DJ very, very much. And yes, it was incredible. You know, I mean, <laughs> of course, it was good for everybody. He got up and sang with us. He sang, Some Guys Have All the Luck. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Rod Stewart's song. Yeah, um, He didn't write it, but Rod did it. Uh, but, uh, you know, and what we did was, because he wore the shades in the show all the time, he went out front to sing it. And we all had the roadies and the, all of the band in his Ray-Bans, in his shades. So when he turned around to back, we were all wearing his sunglasses and he just fell over laughing and the crowd went insane. So, you know, in your acting career, I got because you've done going from sitcoms to dramas. What I mean, what was it like when you were, you know, on Frasier? I mean, that must have been that was such a great show. And as an actor, that must have just been a uh, it must have been fun. Well, they were all, they were all fun. There was, there's been very few, um, and I, I really can't think of any 
time or any show, and I've done 50 movies and, you know, 150 hours of American television. So, But I can absolutely tell you that movie sets and TV sets are incredible. The people in that work behind the scenes, you know, became my friends. And MacGyver, all the stunt people I would work out with, I would run with, I would, you know. And it was beautiful. It's not just the gig. It's the feeling of the crew, the collaborative effort of making this wonderful thing work. Kelsey's an incredible actor, you know. I mean, he's played Macbeth, he's, you know, he's an amazing actor. He was great to work with, but I was only there a couple of days because I knew him. And he said, listen, would you like to come in and play the, you know, and of course I said, yes. Right. Yeah. And um, most of the things that I've done have been through my relationships with various people. Now, rather than through an agent or something, you know. Now, is that why you ended up in a new WKRP in Cincinnati? Because they remembered you from your first appearance and they said, hey, this guy be great. Okay, so now you hit the nail on the head. That was the one production I didn't dig. <laughs> the, you know, it's like I have a real abhorrence of reuniting anything, bands, movies, reimagining things. Is uh, You know, it's like, okay, let's let's make the Mona Lisa blonde. You know, you know, it's an absurdity to me, and, and that's what they tried to do, and they paid me a lot of money, and, and I suffered through it. The, the one saving grace of that show, that one season I did, was Tony Kitane, who is the funniest, most self-deprecating, beautiful woman ever. Now, you didn't like that experience, but now that does, didn't frustrate you at all, because a lot of times I talk to a lot of actors who are an experience but they don't like and they get frustrated because they're hoping the next show is good. But for you, you had so many different venues to, you know, cre yeah. with your creativity, you I probably said, screw it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it absolutely meant nothing to me. I go home and write a song, you know. Now, you also ended up in Melrose Place. Not at one point, you know, I always try to tell younger people that, you know, back when, you know, TV before it's exploded, like Melrose Place, Everyone watched TVs. Bars used to have like viewing nights. When you were on that show, was it eventually was mm. it supposed to be one one night episode of work, and they liked you and brought you back, or did you know you were going to recur for a few episodes? No, I, I I got the gig, and then Aaron Spelling liked me and put me in more of them. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But I love Heather. You know, I was really fond of Heather, and she's a rock and roll girl. And we ended up actually doing a lot of animation work together, a lot of voiceover work together um but she was great show was great it was huge you know and i, I thoroughly enjoyed doing melba's place it was just so um fun you know the cast was great i adored heather and i did most of my work with her now when you on a show like that does it somewhat create a new fan base for you also because it's a it's a different crowd who may have not seen your early work may have not known about your music may have not known a power station about power station did it when you do a tv show like that because it has such a cult following did you find yourself getting new fans or getting recognized more than you might yeah um the thing about telly steve is i've done so much and it's on everywhere somewhere all the time these shows so, you know, characters that I played 40 years ago have, are seen by a 12-year-old in Sweden. So you, you don't have to do too much. You know, it's, it's such a part of the culture that you can access any of these shows, these, these obscure series that I've done, these movies that I've done, at a, at, at a click. It's a different world. So fan bases, yeah, you know, it's amazing. It's incredible what people remember. 
you know, I just bought a house in Pasadena, and I went, the first uh, little um, sort of hipster uh, restaurant I went into, this waitress dropped her tray and said, my mother loves you, you know, so, you know, I, it just is a, a, an ever-evolving situation, which, again, I'm so grateful for. Now, what was it like when you worked with Clint Eastwood? Because he's a legend, and he's probably very professional. I heard he shoots very fast. He gets stuff done. Yeah, you know, it's moving on. It's, you know, uh, what happened with him was I was cast on tape, and I talk like this. I talk like a biker from Arkansas. And, and he thought that I was a biker from Arkansas. <laughs> so when I arrive on the set, I say, Mr. E, to make my career. And he fell over and laughed, and we were best friends. That night, we went into his trailer in Nevada, in the mountains, and the trailer was Schwarzenegger's gym. And he showed me a documentary on Thelonious Monk, the great avant-garde jazz pianist. And we sat there and watched it and bonded over this. And I had the best couple of months of my life with him. He was amazing. And yeah, you do it twice and move on. You know, his movies have made billions of dollars for Warner Brothers. You know, for many, many reasons, his enormous talent, one thing. Politically, of course, completely oppositional, but none of that ever came up. It was a really tight unit, great cast, fun movie, didn't do so well at the box office. I could care less. I met Clint Eastwood. And you work with him, which is amazing. Now, now, you know, we talked earlier, you said how you wrote Obsession. What was, how, yeah. how did your writing career, how did you end up writing that, and how does your writing career you know, go from there because, you know, you're writing for yourself, but how does this, how do you write a song like Obsession? Did the band come to you? And did you think it would be such a huge hit, which still plays today when you penned it? Yeah, all of those things are true. It was written lyrically um, about drugs, but I turned it into a, because I was like a few months sober when I wrote it. But what happened was I turned it into a love song. going to, you know, dance to a song about cocaine being your lover. Um, and so I, I twisted the lyrics around, but Chapman introduced me to Holly. Holly Knight, responsible for Love is a Battlefield, uh, or a, a lot of Tina's hits, Tina Turner's hits, and Chapman, brilliant producer, Blondie, and he actually produced one of my records, but he put me together with Holly. Um, within 10 minutes, that song was done. We did it um, together, Holly and I, that version was put out and was included in a soundtrack for a movie uh, about male strippers. The, an A&R man at what Animotion's label, I don't know the label, um, liked it and gave it to Animotion, and the rest is, you know, is what it is. It's, um, it's a perennial seller. It's licensed by many TV shows and movies, and... and uh, Let's say that it, I've, I've been able to live a very comfortable lifestyle just off that one song, let alone everything else. So it's very, it was really important. But what's important for me to tell you is, and your audience out there, you musicians out there, you know, if you, if you write anything, write the truth. Be authentic about what you're doing and mean it. Don't try and write what you think is happening. Write what is happening to you and that uniqueness of you sharing your true self will will be commercial because people will really that obsession with something really hit a nerve the chorus was who do you want me to be to make you sleep with me everybody's felt that 
an identity crisis. You know, what do you want me to be to make you love me? You know, what do you want me to be? And people related to that, and, and that was how I was feeling. And that feeling became an international phenomenon. Now, it comes up, not, I know, but it's huge. Now, as you have grown, you know, you still stay true to yourself and write, but do you have your focuses changed, or have you always written what you feel? Yeah, but what I felt as a young man was very difficult to what I feel like, you know, when I was 40. When I was 20, I was my, the, the first song I wrote was called More Than Your Mouth Can Hold. So I'll leave your audience's imagination to go wild. And, you know, the last song I wrote was Painkiller for Darlene Love on Darlene Love's new record that Steve Van produced, which is about love as the great painkiller. Now, how did your relation start with Steve Van Zandt? And uh, I know you have the great show on his Sirius station. How did your relation start with him? Yeah, we're on Sirius XM Channel 21, Little Steven's Underground Garage. I'm on from... 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. on the East Coast, where you are, and 9 p.m. to midnight here on the West Coast, Pacific time. Well, I was at a band called Checker Past with Steve Jones, Clem Burke, Nigel Harrison, and Tony. And we supported Stevie on a tour of his, I think it was Men Without Women, maybe, EMI records were on the same label, and we just fell in love with him. I mean, he was, he was and is the most amazing man other than Sidney Poitier, I've ever met. The guy's mission is to bring rock and roll, authentic rock and roll to the people and bring instruments into schools for the kids. This guy is a dynamo and I love him. And, you know, a few years ago, um, his wife heard me interviewing people on the internet and whispered in Stevie's ear, you know, you should keep your eye on this guy. And Andrew Lou Goldham, who had that spot on uh, the channel, um, decided that he'd, he'd had enough and was in Bogota, Colombia, married. And they called me, Stevie called me and said, you know, do you want to do this? Yeah. Um, and they tried me out for a few weeks. It went quite well. And that was almost four years ago. Now, how do you decide what you're going to play? Is it personal favorites from yours? Is it people you know? I mean, how do you, how do you decide how you're going to format your show? And Sirius is such a great... I mean, I listen to Sirius. I listen, you know, I have Sirius. And, you know, sometimes a lot of the stations replay stuff. I, it seems like they're on a track. But for you, it's different. How do you decide what you're going to play? And, and, and what, what, is the, what music means a lot to you? Like, what, who, how do you find artists? Well, you know, to be perfectly candid with... This is primarily and was um, initiated and chosen by Stephen Van Zandt. So one doesn't choose... Um, uh, a, I, I have some say in what I can play, um, but what I do is I have a feature on my show where I uh, focus on one artist and I use quotes from them every day, not just rock and roll artists, but writers and writers, and I, and I choose songs that I think are appropriate for them when I talk about them. But essentially, it's a playlist created by SVZ, which is everything from Howling Wolf to Hermes Hermits. You know, it's a, it's, but it, the one I think uh, that makes it just a unified, uh, authentic playlist is, is that it's real rock and roll by great artists, Sam Cooke to Iggy, you know, and it's incredibly eclectic. And, and you will not hear music like this anywhere else. That's, that's what I say every day. You simply will not hear music like this anywhere else. It's just great rock and roll soul, rockabilly. You know, it doesn't really explore today's world. Sometimes 
will play bands that that are great you know that evoke that style of music we'll play them but essentially it's just classic songs from the doo-wop to you know bluesy rock and roll to you know hermit's hermits now over the years you've been in a lot of different bands with some great musicians. How does that formulate? How does that happen? And I know even at one time you, you I think, fronted a 10-person, a 10-piece soul band. How do you decide what you're going to do? Like, do people contact you and go, hey, Michael, you want to do this? Or, or is it just something that it just flows and then you decide to do a project? Yeah, it flows, you know, and you just go with what's going on. That's what's happened to me my whole life. I've never really gone out after something. Um, this uh, work that I do with, uh, for Stephen Van Zandt at Little Stevens Underground Garage is the first formal uh, gig I've ever done, and that's every day I, I work on this show. You know, I I, um, I love it. In terms of how it's gone and who I've met and how I've met them, I have no idea. It just happened. I would be in a certain place. I mean, I've gotten more record deals, you know, at a, uh, at a nightclub. Uh, you know, than going in and playing demos. You see, Steve, it's terribly important for the audience to know that the way you feel about yourself is the way others will feel about you. If you give up a positive vibe, you will attract those people and something good will come out of it. If you feel that you are not, you know, um, together and you're, you're hustling, you will never get anywhere because that people can smell that. People can see it. You know, and I've just been lucky. I've just been really positive about, you know, it will happen, you know, and I'm not in any way desperate for it to happen. And it does. It just falls into place. Now, what was it like fronting a 10-piece soul band? Hilarious. Wilson Pickett is my idol. You know, as he is everybody that can, you know, that raspy British singing like Paul Rogers, Terry Reid, you know, Robert Plant, you know, Steve Marriott, all of the great rock singers were influenced by the guts and balls of Otis Redding, uh, the beauty, beautiful effortlessness of Sam Cooke, and the, uh, you know, the, the grunting and fearsome anger of Wilson Pickett. So to have a horn section and girls and congas and keyboards and, oh, heaven. But that was a really a vanity project, you know. I only did that in the clubs in L.A. Yeah, and that was just, we do like James Brown songs, and it was just wonderful. I mean, but it was more of a performance art thing than a career. You know, I did it because I think I was doing some TV series and I would do that, that at night or the weekends. Now, when you sit there and you watch TV now, do you, do you, do you have favorite shows? Cause you've been on so many shows. Do you enjoy TV? Yes, very much. I love television. I really do. I'm like Chauncey Gardner. I mean, I just love television. I, uh, Chauncey Gardner, of course, it's in the movie being there, you know, um, played by Peter Sellers so beautifully. Yeah, I watch, a, 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 you know, some amazing television shows. You know, TV has become this high, this wonderful place to go to see great drama, you know. Um, and my current show is Ozark with Jason Bateman and Laura Linney, who I work with. I did a movie with Steve Martin and Gabriel Byrne called The Simple Twist of Fate. I think it was her first movie. And she's great in it. And, and I, yeah, I watch TV. I love it. It's a great relaxer for me, telly. Yeah. 
I'm actually, I'm, I'm me and my girlfriend are watching Ozark right now. We're on episode four, and it is, you know, it's something that it's Jason Bateman's also so good, and Laura Linney is awesome. such a great actress. Awesome. But it's uh, it's a great thing. Now, have you seen uh, Little Stevie's show, um, Lillehammer? What do you think? Is that? <laughs> of course, I memorized three seasons. That... Um, yeah, I, I loved, yeah, he's a great actor. Anything he turns his mind to, he's great at, you know. And I'm being absolutely honest here. I, I, I think the word of the guy. And in Lillehammer, you know, Sylvia, for Christ's sake, and Sopranos, probably everybody's favorite series. You know? So he can act, you know. And um, Lillehammer, I thought, was a great conceit. Um, but it can, you know, everything has its, its, uh, its time. And then sometimes it's time to move on. Now, have you done much acting? I know you've been on a few TV shows in the last few years. Are you just not getting any auditions, or are you just concentrating on other things? Or because you have the full-time radio job, you can't act right now? Well, no, I could do whatever I want. I, I can, I could do my show. I do it from home in my own studio. I have a laptop, a microphone. Uh, you know, I can do it from anywhere. I can do it from a bathroom in Berlin. I, I don't audition. I, I, uh, I'm not really that consumed by the idea of uh, acting at, uh, in the last few years. Because you see, Steve, 80% of the time you're in a trailer and you spend hours in that trailer and then you go out and you're fabulous for three minutes and then you're back in the trailer again asking somebody to get you a cappuccino. It's a very unhealthy vibe for me. I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't feel it anymore. If I was getting $20 million a movie, maybe I would change my mind, but I'm not. And um, I'm concentrating on broadcasting and other projects, music. I've had two albums out in the last three years and I'm working on a third, which will be out in January. Uh, on Stevie's label, Wicked Cool Records, and um, and I'm 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 quite happy. I'm approaching seventy. I'll be seventy in January, and uh, I don't want to get in a van, <laughs> and I don't want to sit in a trailer. <laughs> I uh, want to enjoy my beautiful home and my uh, beautiful girl and my cats and my friends. How many cats do you have? Seventeen. Seventeen. No, cats. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have two. I have two cats, Lenny and Wally. And, uh, and if you go on Instagram, you, you guys go on Instagram and, and see just how beautiful my cats are. That's good. And now, how did you come up with the names Lenny and Wally? Lenny for Lenny Bruce, and Wally because I'm fascinated by the Duchess of Windsor, who toppled the Duke of Windsor from being King of England, uh, American socialite, and uh, you know the um, the hypocritical aristocracy decided that the king had to resign. Now, That's why I called it Wally. Yeah. Now, now, your latest, your last solo album, was that the Key of the Universe? Yes. Now, how did, what, when you decided to do a solo album, I know you just probably lead into it because that seems like your career has been, how do you assemble the band? How do you, do you sit there and do you have a bunch of material or, you know, how does it, how does, what's the process for you? Because every musician's different. It's every, it's different every time. I don't have a process. A guy called me up with a label and he said, come to Rome and let's make an album. I said, okay. And I got on the plane and I went to Rome. Now, meanwhile, this guy got Nigel to play bass and Clyde Deemer from Radiohead on drums and Danny Robinson on guitar, incredible African-American. And we created the whole thing in, in the studio. And I, I hadn't written or anything. 
I know we wrote it all together in that time, in the moment. Now, what that must be a great feeling when it's in the moment. I mean, just and also it's just a matter of, are you worried how it's going to come out, or did you just have you said that confidence you've always had in your life that you just say, "I'm putting my heart out there; it's going to work." Yeah, I, I, but you see, what, but that what you've just asked me is, it's going to work. You've got to determine what it. What is that? What is it that works? Is it a hit? Is that the objective? That everybody will dig it and you'll be, you know, sting. Or is is it satisfying enough to go to Rome, stay to Rome for two or three months, enjoy Italy, which is what I did with my girl, and uh, make a record? It, it, what you've got to decide, everyone has to decide, is what are you doing? Are you doing and enjoying what you're doing in the moment? Or are you expecting something to happen from that moment? If you are, you are fooling yourself. Because you never know what's going to connect with an audience. It's impossible to, to work that out. You can try and work with the same producers that produce the same songs from the same sounding artists, and you can go in that factory. But when you're out on a limb and you're creating something that's yours and is not determined by, by a, you know, a fascistic record company that want product, that's a whole other story. I've never been in that world. Now you said you're working on a new album. When did you start working on that? And what you know, what are you, where are you getting your writing from? Are you writing about you know politics or, or from your heart or what? What is the album about? How interesting! How interesting! You should say that both of those things, my heart and my politics. I think that today's climate is so dreadful and so dangerous and so chaotic, as is evidenced every day more and more. That if you don't write about what's happening. You're not, you're, you're not part, you're part of the problem. And I want to be part of the solution in my own humble way I'm writing about. That's really all I can say about it. But when this comes out, it will be controversial. And now, that's got, it's good because I think we need controversy now. It's like, I mean, when you see what's going on now and, you know, you've been around and you've seen different, you know, through in America, you've been in a long time, what do you think can change our social climate now i mean are we are we too far gone or how are we going to get back to when we just you know i mean it's never been perfect but it just means very turbulent right now how do we solve that by loving yourself because here's the thing um peace in action is what i believe i believe that each individual we are all the same we are unified we are all part of this wonderful universe, right? Our higher selves is unified. So what happens is, if you are good to yourself and you are loved and you love your friends and family in your community to the people that need you, that need help, like uh, the, the opiate epidemic, like homelessness, like all the things that, be aware of that and be alert also for the potential violence that comes with that, and, um, you know, care for the community. Because it's that old adage of you throw a pebble in the lake and it, and it ripples out. You can, I'm not going to go to Syria and, and get... But what I can do is, like, in my community, I can work in that, and I do. And I think that we've got, all got to do that. But writing about it is something else. You're, good, you're, you're working with bigger themes, you know, and, um, and I am, man, and I've done a couple of covers that are appropriate today as they were when they were written. I, I won't mention them because, uh, you know, I want it to be somewhat of a surprise when it all comes out. 
Uh, and by the way, albums, I don't think about albums anymore. You know, I think you're an idiot if you think about albums. I think you think about songs and make a great song. Spotify doesn't care about albums. You know, and that's how people get their music. You know, to go and buy an album. A friend of mine, dear friend of mine, great guitar player, called me up. Older, you know, guy, you know, was in rock bands. And he calls you up and he goes, oh, i got to work this running order out, man. I said, there's no running orders. <laughs> Nobody cares about a running order. They just care about songs. Where is this guy? Hang, hang on, Steve, one second. I just got a, yeah, I just got a package from FedEx because I've just moved into this house. Hang on. Okay, here it is. So, yeah, record controversy, stooges, politics, you know, loud, fast rock and roll is my next record. Now, now you just moved. When, what made you decide on Pasadena? Because Pasadena is beautiful. What made you decide? And where were you living before Pass? I was living in North Hollywood. And I had my studio and I had all of that stuff I had in North Hollywood. It's great. But I, uh, I wanted to go to trees and mountains. I bought a house at the base of the San Gabriel Mountains where we had land. Me and my girl, we, you know, we're going to plant stuff and grow food. And, you know, because... You know, one has to be pretty careful about what's happening out there. And uh, I wanted to have a, a compound, if you will, with a generator and some food stocked. See, that's smart. Yeah. Now, i got to ask you, because you've been in L.A. for a long time, and you, you know, you're, you're someone who's very aware. Why do you think recently the homeless situation has risen in L.A. so much? Because I know when I left, it was three months ago, it was really getting higher. Does that bother you when you see that? Because, you know, you seem like a great guy and, you know, you've been, you've been in the city for so long. What goes through your mind when you see that? Does it piss you off that, you know, it's happening? I have, I have a rule. And one of my rules is whenever I see a homeless person, I pull over and I go to them and I give them everything in my pocket and I you know, I, I talk to them and some of them, are, you know, schizophrenic. A lot of them are crazy, but make perfect sense to me because I'm a little crazy and I hear what they're saying and I spend time with them. And that is part of my whole program of, of the unification of everyone. Every individual is responsible for every individual. And if you think that way, whenever I see a homeless person, I, I, I'm so emotional about it. I'm emotional right, talking about it right now. And why is it on the rise? I'll tell you why it's on the rise. Because of corporate greed. We are an oligarch society where a handful of people have everything. And the bottom, the bottom, the people at the bottom are getting more and more and more. And sometimes we'll be walking over them like they're not even there. And we'll become so, you know, anesthetized to the issues. You know, some, you know, I'm telling you, as Sam Cook said, a change, you know, a change is coming. I've always thought that, especially in L.A., I think there's going to be an uprising just because, as you you know, it's amazing when you see how the rentals are going through the roof. And what does L.A. do? They build all these luxury apartments when it's like there's people, there's tent cities going up everywhere. That's correct. And, and it's something that really, really makes me mad. And it makes me mad at the hierarchy of the corporate structure. And I know you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you all agree. I mean, but the, the way to deal with it is, is to deal with it. And yourself as an individual and anybody that you come across that you think needs help, help them. 
Right. Now, now you mentioned earlier your book. When you're in the middle yeah. of writing a book, and, and that, that's going to be a great read. No, my documentary. Oh, I doc- mentioned my documentary. And, and I've written all my life. So, yes, there's a book coming. But it's not about um, rock and roll. It's, you know, it's more about the, 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 the incredible journey that I've been on, you know. Um, because I've been, I don't know, you know, I am almost 70. I've experienced so much, as, as we all have, as everybody has, the pain and the heartache and the triumphs and all of it. And I've learned so much from it. I have no regrets. And, and the documentary will show that. It will also show me acting with Johnny Depp and Clint Eastwood and so on and so forth and, and, and you know, playing Live Aid and all the rest of that crap. But I, it also, I think, really, at its, at its crux, it's about a guy who open-eyed enthusiasm and energy, a positive person who went through life and dealt with everything in front of him with some degree of principle, you know. Even when I was fucked up, I still had a real kind of conscience, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I never stopped working, you know, and, and that's been a beautiful thing, and it's kept me uh, agile and athletic and young. I work out every day, I, I eat right, you know, I drink lots of water, and all of these things are important. You know, it used to be cool that we'd smoke cigarettes. You think cigarettes are cool? Yeah. Believe me, I know. Write a will. Write your fucking will. Okay? I, I had yeah. a I had a heart problem five years ago. I walked out of the hospital. I've never smoked again. And people don't get that. Thank you. And I see people sit there and go, you know, hey, well, do you want a cigarette? I go, why would I want a cigarette? I was, I, I got my calling and I bounced back. So I'm not going to sit but there. But God bless up. you, Steve. God it's, bless you because you were smart enough to realize what was happening. Most yeah. people were in a fog shoving ice cream and this food that they give you with these, you know, with this sugar and the, the, you know, but I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, some proselytizing Oprah, you know, God bless Oprah, but I, I, I don't want to, you know, listen, everybody doing it wherever they like. As far as I'm concerned, I can only do what I like, uh, which is take care of myself so I can take care of those. And that's, that's what we, I think we all need to do. Cause it's like, for me, it's like, I'm not, I'm not ready to leave this earth. I got stuff to do. You know, I'm, I'm not putting the same. Yeah, you got a girlfriend, you got a TV, you, 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 you want to enjoy your life. <laughs> You know, and you speak, and you terrific interview. You've got a great show. People flock to your show. It's fabulous, and you've got a really you're doing service. You're entertaining people, and, and you know, hopefully, people come on and, and uh, tell the truth. And yeah. that's all we can do. That's all we can do. Now I want to and, ask, and you're doing it. And that's wonderful. I want to ask you this before we go. Why are you so great on Twitter? You respond, and I follow you on Twitter. You responded to me. You respond to everybody, and I think that is so awesome. And, you know, I mean, I started following you, and you're one of those people that follows right back, which is a lot yep. of people don't. I mean, I know people who I barely know. I mean, I know comics from L.A. who I followed, and you expect to follow back, but you don't get it. What made you become so involved in Twitter, and why do you enjoy it so much? In my life. Everybody that says, uh, hi, Michael, I say, hi, what's your name? What the hell do I think I am? You know, I mean, if I if somebody follows me on Twitter, how crass, how rude not to follow them back. It, it amazes me that people think they're in. A, I don't know what it is. I don't want to criticize you know, people. But the, the thing is, I'm genuinely interested in other people. You know, I spent a lifetime, you know, creating myself uh, and let all of that go 
and I define myself by who I love. And I love everybody. <laughs> I can see how, how people who are hurting, and I want to respond and help. You know, people say, Michael, you know, I'm, I'm really down today, and, uh, you know, my mother is really ill. You know, what should I do? You know, and I say, go and take a tango lesson or whatever. You know, I just respond, and it makes them feel better. What could be better than that? It's true. And you have responded. And it's great. And, you know, I really want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. And uh, your Twitter is at M-D-E-S-B-A-R-R-E-S. And people, follow him. He'll follow you back. Your website, I enjoy your website. I've been on it uh, the last few days. It's the spelling of your name, michaeldebars.com. And, yeah, I want to thank you. And now tell the people when your show is on. What time is it? And My show, my show on the East Coast is on from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., Channel 21, Sirius XM. And on the uh, West Coast, it's on from 9 p.m. to midnight, uh, every night, Monday through Friday. So you can find also undergroundgarage.com or my um, times and your time zones, central time, whatever it is. But I really advise you, <laughs> you guys out there, to listen to our shows. They are amazing. We are playing the best rock and roll soul music of any station in the galaxy. So come and join us at Little Stevens Underground Garage anytime you want. So I want to thank you, people. So go follow him. Follow me on Twitter, people. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 630 episodes and always recording a few a week. Also, you can follow me on Instagram, Cooper Talk One, which when you follow me there, you'll see more of promoting my show and pictures of my food I eat because it's promoting from my health, healthy cookbook I wrote, Stop the Salt. As we talked about my heart problem, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. There's no pictures to you know get you all crazy, guys. It's cooking for one. So go buy that book, StopTheSalt.com. Buy that. And I want to thank you. Follow Michael. Follow me. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.